All right. Good evening, everybody. There we go. There we go. We got some feeling in the house tonight. This is good. Excited to chat tonight. I don't know how I got this topic. We got to talk about some difficult things this evening. Um, tonight's passage brings us to sin, sex, and self-mutilation, and so we're going to dive straight on in and, uh, and lean in. We do believe that God has something really incredible for us in this word, and so I'm excited and expectant for how he's going to speak this evening to each and every single one of us. Uh, by show of hands, how many have ever heard of Father Greg Boyle or of Homeboy Industries before? Yes, we've got some folks. For those of you who don't know, I would uh, highly encourage you to look up both Father Greg Boyle as well as Homeboy Industries. They have an incredible ministry in East Los Angeles. And essentially what happened is Father Greg was sent to East LA to minister. And in doing so, uh, effectively try to say, how do we begin to serve the gang community of East LA in the best way that we possibly can and begin to minister to them, specifically those who would be exiting the gang lifestyle and beginning to move forward into the future. And what happened as a small vision, because continued to expand over the years, now there's over 10,000 former uh, gang members and, or formerly incarcerated men and women that come through the doors of Homeboy uh, Industries every single year in East Los Angeles. It's incredible. It's amazing. One of the things that I love most about Homeboy Industries is that Father Greg put together a trained team of laser tattoo removal physicians. So I say that, and that might not seem like the, the most intense need. However, I want to explain to you a little bit about why this is particularly important in serving ex-gang members as they're coming out of that lifestyle and moving into their future. One of the things that, that it begins to do is it begins to, to allow ex-gang members to re-enter into society and to gain work and to gain jobs without having that marking particularly on their body. For others, these markings, these markings on their bodies, they drastically, drastically affect their mental health. And so to be able to wipe that off is, is an absolutely incredible gift. And for every single individual back at home in the streets where they live, it makes them incredibly, uh, in an incredible amount of danger if they continue to have this mark on their body, especially for those who have left the gang lifestyle. The beautiful thing about it is it's free. Uh, Homeboy Industries says that we will do this for free for anybody that comes and anybody that wants this. This is like the love of God. We want to give it to you. We want to come this. There's over a thousand names on the waiting list. And one of the things that I think is fascinating is if you don't know anything about laser tattoo removal, it's obscenely painful. And so to everybody who comes in, to everybody who joins the list of people on this list waiting to get a tattoo removed, they are told over and over how painful this process is going to be. So many of the folks who have gone through it, they would say that this, this act of laser tattoo removal feels like hot oil being poured on their skin. Difficult, right? Just imagine that, the pain that comes from that. However, on the other side, what comes, no matter how much pain it might take, is significantly worth it to each and every single individual. And year by year, the list continues to grow and grow and grow for folks who are waiting to get tattoos removed on their bodies so that they can have an outward expression of the work that God is doing inwardly in their lives. No matter how much pain it might cause, it might come to an individual to be able to come and to on display put this outward evidence of the inward reality in which God is doing. Painful but worth it. Worth it to each and every single one of them to live into the life that God has called them and has called each and every single one of us to live as his children and as his people. 
And church, this is exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight. In our text, Jesus is saying, to follow me, you must be, you must be uh, available at any time to pay any cost. You must be available to me to, to endure any pain, and I promise you the life that Jesus has is worth it. And so this is where we're at. We're in a sermon series called, Did Jesus Really Say That? And what we're doing is we're looking at these difficult, kind of confusing, often shocking statements of Jesus. And tonight, particularly, we're going to be diving into perhaps one of the most shocking statements in Jesus's ministry. And our goal is this. We want to gain some further clarity. We want to gain some further understanding. And at the end of the day, we want to understand the deeper call that Jesus has on our life through this text and how he is speaking to us. Interestingly enough, tonight, this is also one of the most abused, one of the most distorted, and one of the most mock statements of Jesus's ministry as well. So it's important for us to dig in. It's important for us to just kind of peel back the layers and get in because there's a lot of things that we could take from it. And there's a lot of things that our culture might take and do with it. And so we need to understand this really particularly well as we lean in today. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn with me. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 27 to 30. And as you're flipping there in your Bible or as you're scrolling there on your phone, I want to kind of catch us up to this moment particularly and a little bit about what's happening at this time. So right now we get Jesus. Jesus is preaching his famed Sermon on the Mount. And what he's doing particularly as we find him is he's giving us six examples in this section in which the righteousness of the disciples must exceed that of the Pharisees. He first starts as it relates to murder. And in our passage today, particularly, he's speaking into the context of adultery. And what Jesus is doing is he's coming alongside and he's beginning to correct the misinterpretations that the people had begun to believe of what the Pharisees put in front of them. And over and over again, Jesus says, over and over, you have heard it said in the law, but I say to you. He's saying, you have heard it said, do this, do this physical thing, this physical behavior, and you are good. Check the box and move on with your life. And Jesus is saying, it's not that simple. It's not that easy. Sin's not that simple, and it's not that easy, and there is significantly deeper meaning to your life and to your discipleship, and you're missing it. The, th the thing I want to mention, this is a bit of a sidebar before I get in, because I think it's important, is that what Jesus is doing here is he's not saying that, that anger as it relates to murder prior to this passage is, is a bad thing. In this specific passage, Jesus isn't saying that desire is a bad thing. He's saying that anger and the wrong things at the wrong time at the wrong places can lead us towards sin. But there is such thing as a biblical anger, and we need to understand that. We can be angry in the right things at the right times at the right places, and that's good. And God can work in that. And God does call us to be angry at many things that we see and that we engage in in our lives. So God's not saying anger is bad. As we move into this passage, we talk about lust, lust specifically leading to adultery. Again, Jesus isn't saying desire is bad. Here's what I want to define lust as for us in this context. Lust is desiring something that was not ours to have in the first place. Okay? So what Jesus is saying is desire in the wrong thing at the wrong time at the wrong place and the wrong person can lead us, in fact, to sin. And here he's saying that desire, that lust, ultimately will lead to adultery. But what he is saying is there is, in fact, to be desirous of the right time and the right place and the right person, the right individual. At the end of the day, sexual desire is something that came from God 
And it's important for us to see that, that it doesn't all lead in this direction, that there is good in the midst of that, that God has created it good. It has simply been distorted by the world. And this is the context to which we enter into today. So pick up with me right here, Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. It says this, You have heard that it is said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen to that. I agree. So Jesus, at this point, he's, he's been ministering, right? He's been walking around. He's been doing things. Miracles are taking place. He's beginning to teach. And at this point, if the people had not been stunned or shocked by Jesus' words or actions, certainly they are now as they're sitting on this hillside listening to the sermon that Jesus is giving them in this moment. And one of the things I want us to recognize is this isn't just an illustration that Jesus uses once in his ministry. He actually uses it a multitude of times. We see it here in Matthew chapter 5. We see it later in Matthew chapter 18. We see it again in Mark 9. And just this idea of cutting something or being cut off from something, famously in John 15, it's, a, it's a, this illustration that Jesus tends to use quite often and in very significant moments. But this, this idea, this gouge out your eye, cut off your arm in Mark and later on in the Gospel of Matthew, he says to cut off your leg, right? So we're kind of talking about all the things at this point. But what do we see here when we really begin to read this passage, when we really see what God's communicating to us? It's less about the body part. It's less about the action. And at the end of the day, Jesus is saying here in this passage to us, we are to have a strong conviction to live in purity that we are to have passionate desire to be clean and spotless before God, and that we are in absolute danger when we fail to live godly lives. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what he's communicating to us. And he says it in a way that's saying it's not just about the behavior, but he's getting underneath that. What's the thing that begins to inform the behavior that's happening on the outside that first began in our hearts, rising up to a point where we had a choice to cultivate it or to push it away, or as Jesus is saying here, to cut it off, right? Jesus is saying it's not just about your deeds, it's about your desires, it's not just about your actions, it's about your thoughts. He's saying what is happening in your heart and mind is just as important, if not more important, than what we are physically doing or saying. The famous uh, scholar the, on the, the, the gospel according to Matthew, Dale Bruner, has some incredible things to say about this passage. And he's going to try to kind of dissect them, but I think it's best I just read them to you. He says this. He says, the meaning of Jesus' challenge here is to take decisive action against the habit, thing, or person that though pleasurable and perhaps even seemingly indispensable for living is in fact ruining our lives. Says Jesus does not advise cautious, gradual action, but he counsels surgery, and he does so immediately. He does not advise band-aids; he commands amputations. He continues on. It's as large as the loss will be. Jesus says it cannot begin to compare with the loss of one's whole life. 
The maiming that more life requires will be thousandfold repaid with the wholeness of a life with God that comes from amputation. We may feel that we are being robbed of harmless pleasures and of personal independence when we are told to stop staring, to cease lusting, and to cut off our offending practices. But Jesus says it is infinitely better to go limping into heaven than leaping into hell. Amen. Right? That's powerful. That's vivid. We receive that. We hear that. What we're saying here is that often, if we're honest with ourselves, we sometimes begin to tolerate the sins in our lives that, left unchecked, could eventually destroy us. And what Jesus is saying is it's better to enter into the pain of removal than to allow sin to bring judgment and condemnation. And so really, if we get underneath here, what Jesus is saying is that this is a deep call to examine our lives and examine the things that end up leading us to cultivating that sin in our hearts that lead to the behaviors on the other side of them, and that we would take every necessary action to remove it at this level before it comes out into the world. He's saying we must ruthlessly eliminate anything that seduces us to sin, that we might in fact be able to give every single bit of ourselves to God. Every single bit of ourselves. And so here's what I want to do with our time today, particularly as we're moving out of this. I think that Jesus has two very particular and very specific things for us outside of just understanding the passage and what we've talked about thus far. The two things uh, that, that I think we're intended to do with this passage are, number one, this passage is to, to move us into a place that we would begin to re-understand our relationship to sin in our own personal lives and where we come in with that, and where we find ourselves. And in the midst of this, how are we to biblically confront sin as we are beginning to see it exposed within our own lives, all right? So that's what I want to talk about. That's where we're going to go the rest of our time today, specifically as it relates to this text. And so number one, we need to first understand and reestablish that understanding of our relationship with sin in our lives. So by show of hands, how many of you are parents in the room? There we go. There we go. We got this. Five years ago, my life was totally changed when I became a dad. Um, my oldest is named Nora. Most of you have met her. Gab, in a sermon a few weeks ago, said if there's two things you know about Nora, you know that she is five years old, and you know that she has lost two teeth. And I've seen many of you ask her those questions after service each week. And uh, sure enough, she is sassy. She's energetic. She loves life. And one of the things that, that I started to see in Nora when she was one was, was that, that veracity for life, that sass, begin to be lived out as her personality began to develop. And one of the things that I loved about Nora was that Nora was so curious. And most kids are particularly curious, right? They want to feel everything. They want to touch everything. They want to put every single thing they find in their mouth, right? They're trying to figure out life and what on earth this thing is that I'm beginning to play around in and try to figure out. And one of the things that I've loved so much about being a dad is that I've been given the opportunity to be at the highest of highs with Nora and the lowest of lows with Nora and now with my youngest, Ella. I get to be with her in the times where she tries things for the first time and it results in joy and she gets so excited and I get to celebrate that with her. Similarly, I get to be with her when things don't go as well and I get to sit with her and I get to comfort her. And one of the things that we start to, started to see in Nora was that she was a particularly smart one-year-old. 
she learned that if things didn't result in her joy, that she wasn't going to do them again, and she would kind of move on. And for the most part, this was something that continued to happen in her life, that is, except for one particular thing, and that was with our cats. Uh, so Gavin and I had two cats. We have one cat now. This is Nora when she was very little, and one of our cats. And what Nora would do is she would get very excited, and she loved them, and the cats absolutely hated Nora with everything in their being. Right? She was like public enemy number one in our household, and when she started to crawl, it was game over for the life of our cats. They were angry, and they were mad. Mad cats are not good cats with kids. And so Nora, for the most part, they, they interacted well, and what ended up happening is Nora would just get so fired up and so stoked at times that she would get up and she'd go over to the cats and she just couldn't help it and she would just grab their face as hard as she possibly could. Now, what happens, for those of you who have a cat, you know this, for those of you who don't, you probably could guess this. What happens when a child grabs a cat's face? That's right, nothing good. <laughs> And so the cat just absolutely slashed Nora across the face. And you can see we've got three different scratches on our child's face. And she starts screaming and she is wailing and she's mad and she's upset. The cat's freaking out because she's freaking out. And Gavin and I are just like trying to get everything down and hold it down in our house. Finally get her consoled. Finally get her calmed down. All right, we're going to go about with our day. Can you guess the first thing that Nora went and did again? straight up to the cat, hands on the cat's face, boom, ah, this is not good, right? And it happens again and again and again and again and again. And this is this, basically this part of our life that keeps happening. And Gavin and I are just like perplexed and confused and honestly a bit frustrated at this time. And we started to, you know, Nora, you're one, you don't really understand what we're saying, but like why on earth do you keep doing this? You know that it's not going to end well. You know you're going to be frustrated on the other end. You know that it's not going to end up in your joy, and yet you keep showing up, and you keep grabbing the cat, and you keep getting scratched over and over and over, right? And it begs the question, why, Nora, do you keep doing the thing that you do not want to do? And that's a good question for us, isn't it? Why do we keep doing the things in our lives that we don't want to do? We know we don't want to do. See, in Romans 7, Paul, a very mature Christian, this passage changed my life. I have to be very honest with you. He shows up and Paul, in all of who he is and what he's been doing, says, I don't understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do, and what I hate, I do. If we're to understand our relationship with sin in our personal lives, we have to ask ourselves the question, why on earth do I keep doing the things that I know I don't want to do, that I know joy doesn't result on the other side of, and I know at the end of the day I'm going to be left in a place of disillusionment and frustration and anger, and I'm going to be removed from my relationship with the Lord just that much more. But why on earth do I keep showing up? Why does this keep happening we have to ask ourselves this question. We have to understand this question. We need to dig deeper. Perhaps we show up in this space and we say, you know what, I'm not going to look at that, and then we look at it. We say, I'm not going to drink that, and then we drink it. We say, I'm not going to mess up my relationships, and then we mess them up, and we find ourselves doing the very things that we told ourselves that we would not do, and it's in these moments when we be begin to feel stuck in our sin. And it's in these moments that it seems that the harder that we try to wrestle with the sin in our lives, the more that we get stuck into it. And instead of cutting it off like Jesus has asked us, we begin to continue to cultivate it and wrestle and try. And we get stuck deeper and deeper and deeper. 
Pastor John Ortberg shares that when we get to this place of feeling stuck in our sin, that is when marriages get wrecked, families get broken, hearts get shattered, and reputations get ruined. And so I'm going to ask you a question right now, and I'm not expecting any answers, so I just want you to think. I want you to think, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of sin? What's your first reaction? I ask you that. Because sin isn't something that we tend to talk about a lot in our day and age here in America. We try to get past it. We try to look past it. We try to, to make it seem like it's okay. And if we can just begin to understand it enough or, or make excuses for it enough that we can get to the other end of it. We don't like to talk about it often unless it's about somebody else's sin. It can seem like this outdated concept in our postmodern times. Maybe it brings to mind images of being told what to do and what not to do, and the feelings it elicits are guilt and shame. And yet what I want us to understand and what I believe Jesus is telling us in Matthew 5 is he's saying that sin is an unavoidable part of the narrative of the Bible. He's sharing with us that sin is an unavoidable part of the gospel and that it is also an unavoidable part of life as we know it right now, period. As much as we might want to look past it we think about it, it's not hard to see it and it's not hard to understand it. On a global scale, there is war and there is conflict and there's violence, there's injustice, oppression, marginalization, there's racism. We've got natural disasters, man-made tragedies. Across our city, we can point out the racial division that we have. We can point out the tensions that exist. We can point out the growing divide between the rich and the poor, the vicious cycles of brokenness we are seeing in our schools and in our neighborhoods that we live in. And we're probably well aware in the midst of all of that on that scale of the own selfishness that begins to reside in ourselves and in our hearts. We're aware of the wounds and the baggage that we carry from our past, the ways that we have hurt others, and the ways that we have been hurt. Perhaps even maybe the ways that we have hurt ourselves. And so instead of cutting, we begin to suppress, we begin to push, we begin to hide. And we're told that the world is this way because of what? Because of sin. And so if we're to understand our relationship to sin in our life, we first need to understand what it is a new way. And so here's what I want to do is I want to redefine it for just a moment for us as we press forward with the rest of our evening together. We'll say that sin is this. Sin is anything that goes against God's order for a desire of love and life. Let me say that again. Sin is anything that goes against God's order and desire for love and for life. Neil Plantingay describes that sin is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it. Sin is both the transgression and the shortcoming. Sin is a missing of the mark, a spoiling of the goods, a tainting, excuse me, a staining of garments, a hitch in one's gate, a wandering from the path, a fragmenting of the whole. Sin is what culpably disturbs shalom. It is a sinful human life that is a caricature of proper human life the way that God intended it to be. And so tonight as we're talking about sin, as we're talking about understanding our relationship to sin, what God's called to is to us in our life to cut it off, one of the things we need to recognize is that God hasn't called us in our life simply to manage the sin that's in our lives. Because of the good news in Jesus, we're not just called to that place of management in our sin, but we can live in fullness delivered from it. We're not just talking about not suffering under the weight of guilt and shame. We're talking about experiencing the joy in life that is lived in freedom of God's grace and how we get to that possibility. That's what God's calling us to. The fact of it is, for many of us, we have lost our distaste for sin. We have forgotten how bad sin truly is. And because of that, uh, what ends up happening is our, our view of God begins to shrink. 
Our view of the life that God's called us to has begun to shrink and begun to become something else and has begun to become distorted. The life that God's called us to was one that's fully engaged in loving him and those that we encounter, fully immersed in seeking wholeness in every situation. And our idea of the life God longs for us to lead has become small and uninspiring in the midst of this wrestling within ourselves. And I know for me, it's often in those moments when I lose sight for God's vision for the world. It's when I lose sight for God's vision for my life, and it's when I forget what's possible for God. And so it shrinks, and it becomes small. My vision starts to stray from his goodness, and it's in those moments that I experience the most temptation in my life, and perhaps I am not alone. Whether that's to anger or to lust, of which we're speaking about here in Matthew chapter 5, whatever it might be, the point is, We must have a proper understanding of our relationship to sin in our life and where we find ourselves with it. We must have a renewed distaste for the sin in our life to take Jesus seriously at his call here in Matthew chapter 5. And so, as we press into that, my question for you is a question for yourself, and that's to take a deep look inwardly and say, where am I at in my life in relation to my sin? Have I tried to push it away? Have I tried to suppress it? Have I tried to not pay attention to it? Or am I confronting it? Am I beginning to acknowledge it, not just at a behavior level, but at the end of the day at a heart level? Am I beginning to let God address it as it gets to that space without entering into a moment of cultivation? In this passage, we see that Jesus is challenging the Pharisees. He's challenging the teachers because what they've done effectively here contextually is they've taken adultery and they have reduced it to an outward behavior only focused on being caught for that external thing that's happening. What Jesus says is it's not necessarily about that. Yes, it is. But it started here. And we need to get there. And we need to understand that. And we need to begin to recognize, not as it happens, but as it happens here within ourselves. Jesus is saying to them, and Jesus is saying to us, that we one day will have to give account to God for our thoughts, not just for our actions. Right? So if we're being serious about following Jesus, if we're committed to learning to love, think, and act like Jesus, then we must examine our hearts We must examine our thoughts and understand that God is after a deeper righteousness. He is after your heart. And that is what he's getting at here in Matthew chapter 5. So practically, what do we do? What do we do as we begin to enter this? Whatever that thing might be, fill in the blank. What do we begin to do as we've come to confront the sin in our lives, particularly in moments that we're feeling inadequate perhaps insecure or rejected moments where we're feeling anger or boredom or loneliness, where we're feeling that we've lost control or that we've lost comfort, where we're feeling disappointed or disillusioned or discouraged or maybe in a moment of depression or discontentment. What are we to practically do to confront the sin in our life in these moments? Jesus in Matthew 5 makes it pretty dang clear, doesn't he? He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Jesus takes sin seriously. And although this call is radical and this call is intense, it's not a literal call. Because at the end of the day, if we removed our right eye, we'd still have our left. And if we removed our right hand, we would still have our left. Jesus is saying sin is the problem and we must address it at the heart level. So what do we begin to do practically 
And very quickly, I want to take us to 2 Timothy 2.22. And Paul says this to Timothy. He says, flee the evil desires of your youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call the Lord out of a pure heart. Three practical things from this statement. Number one, in confronting our sin in our lives is that we are called to flee. Number two, we are called to pursue. And number three, we are called to receive. Number one, flee. At the end of the day, we we have to be in a posture that says, this isn't something that I have to enter into. We have beautiful imaginations that God has created. We're grateful for those. But our culture doesn't do a good job of helping us maintain a steady imagination as it comes to the world and as it comes to us confronting the sin in our lives. And so Paul says to Timothy, flee the evil desires of your youth. And if we're being honest, there are probably some things that are in your life that are distracting you from the Lord. And there are some things that Jesus is saying that you might need to surgically remove from your life. In this passage in Matthew 5, he's got us talking about body parts and thinking in that direction specifically. But there are actually some productive things that we can remove from our lives. And honestly, for some of us, it might feel as painful as having surgery on a body part. Really practically, perhaps there are some apps that might be need, need to be deleted from phones. Maybe there are some people that we need to stop following, some music that we need to stop listening to that pushes us into a place, some shows that we need to stop watching because we know if we do, it will, it will beg us to cultivate something in our heart that moves us to another action down the road. Maybe we need to put time limits on things like not looking after at a screen after 10 p.m., knowing that at the end of the day, in darkness, things can begin to become a little bit easier to lean into. At the end of the day, we can make a list of things, of distractions, and I'm sure it would be helpful and good, but what I want us to understand here, specifically, is that what one person can handle, another person can't, and that's okay. We need to understand that and realize that. And we're not here as the church to introduce new laws, And so as I talk about fleeing our sin, when we begin to see it, we begin to confront it. What I'm saying is that fleeing ultimately has to do with honesty, right? Am I being honest about what X activity thing is doing to my soul? And am I willing to accept that I have pain? Am I willing to accept that I'm suffering? Am I willing to accept that I might be depressed? And in the midst of that, asking ourselves the question, am I willing to treat it with the seriousness that Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 5. And so we say flee, and we're saying we need to be real, that we need to be fully honest, that we need to have moments of clarity about coming to terms with the truth about what is underneath the unwanted behaviors that we are seeing in our lives. And yes, when we decide to cut these things from our life, we will be mocked. But Jesus tells us in our passage that it is better to forego some experiences in this life in order to enter the life which is fully indeed life. Because eternity is more important than our temporary desires or fitting in with the culture at our specific moment in time. John Stott says we have to decide whether to live for this world or for the next, whether to follow the crowd or to follow Jesus Christ. And so as we look at our lives, as we examine our lives, as we enter into these moments, there are things that we need to flee And so my encouragement to you right here, right now, before you leave this evening is this. Ask God to reveal to to you what those things are in your life and in your heart. 
For most of us, we might know what those specific things are. And so what I would encourage you to do tonight is to ask God to give you the courage to confront them in a moment of total honesty before him, receiving he and his grace into your life. So the first thing we must do when we see sin in our life beginning to be cultivated, beginning to beg us to act upon it, we must flee. The second thing is we must pursue. We have to shift from simply, strictly just playing defense to playing offense against it. We must pursue what Paul puts in front of Timothy, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And what we're understanding here is we are to pursue is that, that we are to pursue both right thinking and we are to pursue right doing in our life. Right thinking meaning filling our mind with good thoughts, focusing on things of the Lord. Our mind is our helper in the resisting of temptation and of sin in our lives. And yet at the end of the day, it's important that we are in pursuit of that. It's not something that we just slip into. The fact of it is, to be a disciple of Jesus means that we're being transformed to love like Jesus, to think like Jesus, and to act like Jesus. And so as we pursue these things that Paul has put in front of Timothy, we must pursue them in our thoughts, not just in our actions. Philippians 4, 8 says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. God's saying, put these things in front of you. Think about these things and then begin to do them, begin to act them out. When we begin to fill our life with the things of God and with godly community, there's less time for us to believe the lies that we have about ourselves that are hanging out in our heads all the time. We have to pursue righteousness, right thinking, and right doing, living in community others with fully transparent lives. We have to play offense. We can't just play defense. We must flee. We must pursue these things. And ultimately, number three, is that we must come to Jesus in a posture of reception and to receive. Paul to Timothy, flee the evil desires of your youth. Pursue righteousness. Receive from God a pure heart. There is no amount of effort that will overcome the sin in our life. We cannot earn a pure heart. We cannot work hard enough to get one. We must receive it as a gift from God. That is what the gospel is about. That is what Jesus is about. God is saying that to us in our text to cut out the sin in our lives and to come before him in a posture of reception. Saying, God, would you create, create in me a pure heart? We see David pray this after he actually commits adultery in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's us coming before God saying, God, you have to do it. You have to give me a clean heart. Because God, I can flee. I can try to remove all these things from my life and make it harder for me to be pure. Even when I run away, even when I go to the desert, the thoughts are still with me. So we come before God. God, give me a new heart. We come before God in a posture of reception saying, God, I need you to help me see the beauty of the world that you have created and of the people that you have designed and help me to see the way them the way that you have created them not in the way that the world has twisted it, 
It's us coming before the Lord saying, I need to hear your affirmation of me because, Lord, I too often feel unclean and unworthy. It's coming before Jesus in that receptive posture saying, I need to know that I am loved by you. I need to know that I belong. It's us in a moment of transparency and honesty with ourselves that says, I need community. I need not to feel alone in my thoughts. And at the end of the day, in this posture of reception, coming before Jesus above all else and saying, God, I need you. You are the one that will give me a pure heart. So as we look at this text, Jesus has not lowered the bar as it relates to purity. He has raised it. And its intent is to draw us to our knees, to draw us to him, not into our ability to perform well. And I want you to hear this tonight in closing. It's this. There is hope for change. There is hope for freedom. There is hope for healing. Wherever you are, whatever you have done, wherever you have been, there is hope and there is possibility for deliverance from sin. The ability is not in you, but in Christ. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you've come in with here tonight, but I do know this. We all have present struggle with sin in our lives. But here's my challenge to you as well this evening. If something has come to your mind as we've been having and sharing this time together, I encourage you not to leave this place without sharing it with somebody. Whether that's somebody here, I'd invite that. That'd be lovely. But if it's somebody that you feel more comfortable with, I invite you to take out your phone and I invite you to text that individual and set up a time to talk before we leave tonight. Painful as it might be, my friends, it is worth it. Following Jesus isn't easy and it will be painful and it might take surgical amputation. But it is worth it for us to follow and to lean into the life that God has called us to live. Amen. So here's what I want to do. I want us to all bow our heads. I'm going to invite us into a moment of prayer. And I would like you to repeat these words after me. If you want to pray, pray those out loud, I invite you to pray out loud, out loud. That's great. If you want to just pray it to yourself quietly in your heart, that's great as well. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for pursuing me. Forgive me of the unclean thoughts that I've had. Forgive me for the impure actions that I've done. Reveal to me the lies that I continue to believe about myself. Help me to see myself the way that you see me. Lord, give me a clean heart. Lord, draw me back into community. Thank you that I'm loved. Thank you that I belong. Thank you that I have purpose. Amen.